Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm with my co-founder on Women's Agenda, Tala Lambert. Hello, Tala. Ahoy. On the agenda today, we will be discussing a great win for women in the entrepreneurial space, as well as the billboard that got put outside a private Sydney school and the leak from Facebook that shows just how much it knew how damaging Instagram is for young girls. Thank you for listening. So, Tala, I believe you also have an interview for us today, particularly timely. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we get to that later on in the episode? Yeah. So, this week I actually um, had the pleasure of interviewing um, Emily Dider, who is a health researcher and an epidemiologist at the University of Queensland. And we had a bit of a chat around what the easing of restrictions will mean when we're at a 70% rate of vaccination and an 80% rate of vaccination, and particularly what that will mean for women. So she has some really interesting perspectives there. So I would just encourage anyone to, to follow her, but we'll share that interview with you shortly. Yes, we will. And I may also say that this week we are supported by Superhero. So we're really excited about that. And so a little bit later in the episode, just before that interview, as part of this partnership, we are doing a very short financial hack each week, which will be coming up. And this week we are looking at how to get kids started on investing in shares. And we might share some stats regarding just how many kids are already investing in the stock market, which you might find surprising. So to our wins for women, Tyla, tell us about your win. It involves a billboard, it involves a Sydney school, and it involves a great health startup and uh, female-focused femtech as well. Yeah, this is one of the best marketing campaigns I've ever seen, but also just such an important message at an important time. So Ovira, which is a female-owned startup that offers non-invasive, drug-free and discreet pain relief, it was founded by Alice Williams. They funded a billboard to be driven and sat outside Knox Grammar School this week and it was emblazoned with the words, you will not silence our pain. And it follows on a week after a New South Wales district court eased the convictions of 20-year-old Nicholas Drummond, which we wrote about earlier in the week, and it caused a huge amount of uproar. I think women are just so tired of hearing stories like this. And the judge's comments, particularly around that case, he essentially said that Nicholas Drummond could have perceived the woman's clothing to be promiscuous and kind of offered that up as a semi-justification for his actions. He also said that he should thank his lucky stars for being able to, to walk free, which it seems so inadequate. And, I mean, the comments around the woman's clothing and just we've seen so much of it, it has no place in our legal system. I mean, look, this campaign was just a really strong one and I think good on Ovira for capitalising on a moment and this kind of feeling of women everywhere that enough is enough. Look, I don't know what the principle of Knox would have made of such a billboard sitting outside the school for so long, but hopefully it does send a pretty strong message to the boys that go there and every young boy and man in this country. Okay, so now to my win. My win uh, comes from Andrea Christie-David. 
And I followed her entrepreneurial journey since she launched Lior in-home early learning back in 2018. So she has just sold that business this week to the ASX-listed G8 Education in a deal worth potentially $10 million over the next three years. I love it for so many reasons in that it is this entrepreneurial journey kind of going full circle in a way. You know, Andrea left the legal sector to pursue this idea and now she returns to employment in GIAT education in, in a senior leadership position there. But I also like it because it shows the value of moving away from the typical generic startup founder who is usually white and and male and often going after the same type of business over and over again. The final reason why I really love this story is because it highlights, and this is something that I've talked about before, the value and opportunity that exists for innovating in caring sectors. These are the industries that really are in need of innovation and solutions and answers. And sometimes they're not seen as, say, sexy as perhaps the fintech world, but these sectors are just so vital and we really need to come up with a lot more solutions around them to make sure that these caring sectors can actually work for all of us. So in Andrea's case, she started it because she had three kids under the age of five in childcare at the same time, which you can imagine the costs associated with that. And, you know, there's no flexibility around that. And so she saw this opportunity to bring educators into the home to do really clear, set out early learning education. That then evolved to being able to support kids with disabilities, kids who live remotely, kids whose parents work odd hours and kids who, for whatever reason, just can't get to your traditional childcare centres. So that's where it went. And obviously, GIA Education have seen something really needed and vital in that as well. And they have acquired that business. And Hopefully it means that, you know, more kids will get access to that in-home early learning. Yeah, it's a really cool one. I mean, Andrea's been so generous with her time and we've interviewed her many times and had her involved in in various events of ours. She really did just fill a gap that was needed and good on her. This is such a huge deal and, and a massive win for a small entrepreneur. Yes. Okay. So speaking of another entrepreneur, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. So this is the key story that we want to discuss this week. Um, How was that for a segue? Not quite the uh, young, innocent entrepreneur that we might remember or might think of him as, you know, wearing his hoodie back in his 20s, back when he founded Facebook as a way to rate different women on campus. So a few things that we want to discuss here on Facebook, but the key one is The leak from Facebook, and this is known as the Facebook files, that the Wall Street Journal has been reporting over the last couple of weeks. One component of those Facebook files is that they found that Facebook has effectively been hiding or at least, you know, been sitting on, maybe you could call it that, but research that they've done themselves that reveal the alarming stats that highlight the damaging impact of Instagram on the mental health of teenage girls. So... Basically, the leak reported in the Wall Street Journal, it comes from a slide from an internal presentation given within Facebook back in 2019. And the slide reveals the quote that says that we make body image issues worse for one in three teenage girls. There's another slide that was given in another internal presentation back in March 2020 that revealed that 32% of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel Worse, they also found that teens were blaming Instagram for increases in the rates of anxiety and depression. Have had this research, they've clearly had it for a few years. I look at this and, I mean, I don't think we can say that you'd be surprised by the stats in this research. 
I mean, I'm a 30-something-year-old woman and Facebook makes me feel pretty shitty about myself sometimes, Facebook and Instagram does. What do you think, Tyler? I think this is a colossal fuck-up from Facebook and just it's unforgivable really. I guess my concern is actually not that they were necessarily hiding the research but maybe they were actually utilising it for something quite sinister. You mentioned earlier that there have been plans in place to launch Instagram for teen girls. Yeah, Instagram kids, I think maybe for tween girls and tween boys under the age of 13. Age-appropriate content, of course. Imagine if they had actually taken some of this research, and I don't know if this is the case, but it does, like, make me wonder, what's the purpose of this research if you're never going to do anything with it except potentially use it for your benefit in a bad way? Maybe there was other kind of findings that came out of this research that informed their strategy around wanting to launch Instagram for tweens which they've now had to stall because of the backlash from this particular story, which is one kind of saving grace in the whole thing. But it just, it seems to me that Facebook kind of gets more deplorable by the second. Like, can they not do anything good? Lots of other tech companies are really kind of working towards progress in lots of ways. And Facebook is always at the front of terrible stories. And this is one that I think as a mum, it really makes me feel quite sick. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really know that they were looking at launching Instagram kids. I kind of thought that was a joke when I first saw it because that just sounds absolutely ridiculous. Like basically they've got a new app. So it's aimed at kids younger than 13. And I don't know if they've paused it directly in response to this leak, or maybe it just looks like a really bad look to try and launch something like this at this time and you know they've only paused it so it could be coming back next year when they think that maybe everyone will forget about this story and sometimes I think that is the Facebook strategy because there's been so many things and maybe people just move on and people use you know there's so many users on these apps and so many people who maybe don't necessarily care so much or it's become so much a part of your life that it's really hard to unpick it even I can't imagine being a teenager using Instagram like I'm so happy that I'm not living through this period as a younger girl because I do think it would be really hard. But I look at this Instagram for kids thing. So they're saying it would have had age-appropriate content. I have no idea what that means. Like what is age-appropriate content? And I don't know the biggest risks on Instagram are necessarily the traditional risks that we think about in the cyber world for kids. I think like some of the bigger risks are more about depression, anxiety, body issues and things like that. So they weren't going to have advertising on this platform. So that kind of suggests that it's purely there to get people hooked on Instagram young so that they can continue using Instagram from the age of 13. Sounds like something that tobacco companies used to do like a few decades ago. It just makes you feel really good about the world, doesn't it? Like Mark Zuckerberg just really adds to my feeling of just overall optimism. I just don't understand how you can have this sort of research and these things go on and on and just I know that he has a vision as to what these social apps should be and and how to connect the world, but at some point you've got to think this isn't necessarily a good thing, this isn't necessarily doing anything great for humanity if we're just, I don't know. Yep. So (laughs) still on the topic of kids, but in a very different way, we will cross to this week's tip. Thanks to our new partner on the podcast, Superhero. So today's tip is around getting kids started on investing in shares. So new research from Finder has found that 7% of children under the age of 12 have a share trading account in their name, 
which amounts to around 270,000 kids who are already investing in the stock market, or at least whose parents are investing in the stock market on their behalf. So, Tala, is it ever too early? I actually think this is great. I mean, historically, our parents or grandparents would have set bank accounts up for us and maybe we'd put some birthday money in there and and that was all very nice. But I think that this is just a really great way, especially for young girls who we know are going to go through their lives, enter the workforce with a quite considerable gender pay gap. And this is just a really great way for them to have started a small portfolio for themselves and then also to just have an idea about money early on. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got boys. Eldest has just turned eight and we will get him started soon. He actually asks us about this stuff. Um And so he has got an interest already. And I do like that as an education tool as well, because we'll often talk about the impact of world events on the market in really, really simple ways. We also talk about the opportunities in, say, renewable energy investments and green investments and things like that, like I say, in really simple ways. And we can start that conversation about wealth concepts and compounding returns and that kind of thing. Now, the thing is that you don't need a huge amount of money to get started and you can use different share trading platforms. And so our partner here, Superhero, does have one. So the Superhero Miner account, and it can be set up for a miner and allows you to invest in ASX shares as well as US shares. So basically the kids with these different types of accounts across different platforms, as kids turn 18, the account can be legally transferred over. So, I mean, obviously as a parent, you either control this or you keep a very firm eye on it. But one really cool tip that I've heard around kids and investing is that you can volunteer a certain amount of money, first of all, into the account every week. And as kids get older, I've heard this awesome tip that, you know, a parent can do or a grandparent can do is where you offer to match a large sum that a child manages to save. So you could say, hey, look, if you're able to save $1,000 by the end of the year or over this period, and you're willing to put that into your share portfolio, then we'll match it with our own $1,000 as well. And that becomes just an added really good, compelling reason to get kids saving, to get kids interested in this stuff and showing them a really powerful example of how that saving can lead to more wealth creation. So a couple of little quick things to think about there. Thanks again to Superhero for bringing us this week's FinHack and for supporting this podcast. It really goes a long way in enabling us to do what we do on Women's Agenda. You can learn more about your options at superhero.com.au or you can download the Superhero app. All right. So now we might go into Tala's interview with Amelie Dida. When it comes to COVID, there's no shortage of advice on vaccinations, breakouts and roadmaps forward. But as we enter what we hope will be the home stretch, it's more important than ever that we turn our focus to the experts. Sorry, Craig Kelly. I'm joined today by a good friend of mine, Dr. Amelie Dider, who's an infectious disease epidemiologist working as a teaching and research academic in the School of Public Health at the University of Queensland. Amelie, thanks so much for making time to chat today. Thanks for having me, Tyler. It's good to be here. So straight into it, COVID has dominated our lives for close to two years now. How do you see things evolving? Is there light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, I I don't like this question. I've had it a lot lately because I do and I want to give people hope, but it's I don't think it's as soon as people might like to think. Um, I certainly think we're going to see an increase in freedoms. We've seen that from the roadmaps that have been introduced. But this is going to be 
something we're going to have to learn to live with, I think, you know, for the foreseeable future. Um, as we've seen with the Delta strain, you know, through New South Wales and Victoria, it's acted very differently than previous strains. There might be other variants that come out. So it's going to be something that we're going to have to monitor over time. Ah, bummer. <laughs> we keep hearing about a national action plan, but it does seem like states are still going it alone in large part. Do you think that that's a problematic strategy? Yeah. Oh, you're coming at me with the tough ones today. Um, look, I think from a public health perspective, I don't see such an issue for states going it on their own. We know that epidemics and outbreaks don't spread in uniform ways. And so when we are responding, we should always be looking to localise conditions. So I think that actually makes a lot of sense. But I, I think from a policy perspective, you know, certainly they need to take into consideration. When I look at things, I just look at the public health evidence. But I think people who are in policy positions have to take into the broader context. And I think having a national plan in terms of that is really important. One of the things that I think is a bit of an issue is this national push for the 70% opening up of vaccination. And I think certainly there's been pushback from the states in terms of that. And that has certainly been based on health advice. You won't find many epidemiologists, I don't think, who would suggest that that's a good number. Um, there's a lot of nuance to the modelling that's been done that says it's safe to open up at 70%. You know, the vaccine rollout seems to be going a lot better now. Waiting to 80% would be safer. I mean, vaccination rates in Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne, parts of Queensland are pretty high, but there's obviously still ground to make up before restrictions can be eased properly. Um, I know that, as you've just noted there, lots of premiers are antsy to kind of get things going again and there's a lot of mounting pressure. But what will life look like at a 70% vax rate and again at 80%? The thing to remember when we talk about 70 or 80% vaccination rates, we're throwing around these numbers, it's the over 16 population. So that's not even 70 or 80% of the whole population. So we need to remember that. I do completely understand the pressure to, to open up. And I think that's completely valid that we're not just talking about public health, we're talking about economic impacts, uh, mental health. There's a range of things to consider. And I think the roadmaps that have been presented seem quite reasonable because what they are doing is suggesting that there are still going to be restrictions. So we're putting in place things that, you know, like capacity limits and people still having to wear masks. So it's not going to be a we open up at 70% and everything goes back to normal. I guess in terms of what the modelling in Australia has shown, and I think also experiences from countries overseas that have high vaccination rates, is that we need those lower level restrictions in place. And then if case numbers do get higher, there still might be the need for some lockdowns. But I think what we will see is those num the vaccination rates continue to increase. There'll be less and less need for those really hard type lockdowns. But I think we really do need to prepare ourselves for, for ongoing low level restrictions. Hmm. What about for areas like mine? I live in the Northern Rivers, which has the lowest rate of vaccination in Australia. What's our roadmap out of this? Yeah, that's that's also a tricky one. I feel like I'm saying tricky a lot today. You know, I want to be really reassuring to people because I do feel safe and reassured as an epidemiologist. There are really good people working on this and I want us to all feel like we're in this together and I don't want to create division, but I guess one of the, the spaces that we do need to see that there is going to be division is in that vaccination coverage. You know, there are going to be different freedoms for people with and without vaccination. I think before that, I saw this thing on Twitter this morning, um, a quote, and it said, uh, vaccination is a dimmer, it's not a light switch. And I just thought that was the best way to describe it. So it's, it's, it's helpful, but it's not going to stop things altogether. And 
as you said, there are some areas like where you are, where rates are lower. And that may be because of vaccine hesitancy, but there may be other areas, you know, it may be really remote communities, it might be some logistical issues. So I think monitoring those and having targeted programs um, towards those kind of locations is going to be important. Mm. But I guess it is going to be, as I said earlier, with the states and territories, it's going to be monitoring at a local level what's going on and responding. There's not going to be a blanket approach. It's going to be going to have to monitor as it goes along, which everyone's doing, um, and respond as appropriate. And that might, you know, restrictions may look different in, in different places if case numbers really start to rise once the restrictions start to ease. Do you think that there's anything that can be done to better influence people in areas like mine with low vaccination rates to to come forward and get jabbed? Yeah. Oh, look, it's the age-old question, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> vaccine hesitancy. Look, there are some people that we can't get through to. The research shows even if we provide correct scientific information to those kind of people with the really strongly held beliefs, it'll actually make them bear down on their, their beliefs even more strongly. I think there is some of that wiggle room with the vaccine-hesitant people. When we think about, I think sometimes people think people are either pro or against vaccine, but there are these people in the middle that just have questions. And I think those are the people that we need to be monitoring and that are being monitored with epidemiological studies in Australia because they may just have questions or just need a bit more information. They may have seen some misinformation or have concerns about side effects. We need really contextual information about what what their actual concerns are so that we can address those. And I think the other thing is that we just need to monitor it over time, unfortunately, because, I mean, at this stage with our vaccine roller, I don't think we've even sort of got to that level of we're just it's just logistically trying to get your vaccines. So I think all the people who want to get vaccines at the moment are going out to get them. And then once we hit that sort of plateau rate, I mean, some countries have seen it happen at 70%. I hope we don't. But then once we've hit that rate where people are starting to be like, I don't want to get vaccinated, then we really need to be focusing on why, why or why not are they getting vaccinated. You hear it a lot with pregnant women at the moment, especially, and um, and I understand it. You know, I think when you're pregnant, you you do feel this like acute sense of vulnerability, and that's probably heightened. Well, it definitely is heightened by this period. And I guess the fact that their argument is that there hasn't been long data um, accrued about this vaccination for pregnant women. What would your advice be there? I think it's fair, and I do understand that people have concerns. I mean, about any vaccination, I'm always happy to talk to people about that, but you're right, this is an emerging situation. I will say the studies that they have done are large-scale, and um, I would suggest actually very cautious, and I actually know some people who are on that board, so I do actually trust what they say, but I understand that people are nervous, and, and I guess the thing is, even as professionals, we are learning as we go along as well, but we don't have all the information, and so our advice may change over time, and then that can be confusing for people. So I think listening to the national bodies who have taken into account all of the information at the time, you do have to do what's right for you, but go and talk to your doctor about you know, the risks um, versus the benefits, because I understand there might be, um, you might consider there's risk, but you may not have considered how much they outweigh the benefits. So it's really that risk balance. And I don't think necessarily people have enough information on their own Mm. because it's also nuanced and it's all still emerging research. It's important to talk to someone who has that information so you can make that sort of an informed decision. Yeah, yeah. Um, you wrote a piece for us recently about the unique impacts that would be on women if we open up prematurely. Can you take us through this a little bit? Yeah, and I guess this is another one of the areas of 
division that I see. So one is in vaccination rates and, and one is the continuing impact of women throughout the pandemic, but in the sort of opening up and recovery. So again, talking about the modelling that's been done and the case numbers we see are going to be most significant in young children. And that makes sense because they, they're not able to be vaccinated yet, as they shouldn't be because we're still waiting for the evidence to come. There's a lot of competing priorities. And I, I do think we need to start opening up for people's mental health, but understanding that that's going to come at a cost to people who are already exhausted, you know, especially women with children who have been trying to homeschool. And then if we're sending kids back to school and then they're the ones who are going to have the highest case numbers, mm. luckily they're not seeing high rates of, you know, significant disease. Um, so a lot of the mortality, high mortality rates are in the older population, but there is still going to be sickness and that's going to result in sick days, off of school, off of work. And so again, again, I think we're just impacting people who have already been unfairly impacted. So having a plan for how to manage that, when we know that women are more likely to take time off of work as the primary caregiver, is really important. It's just compacting problems that have already existed. Any key advice or extra advice for Australians at this point in time? You know, if if you're you know comfortable with it, go and get vaccinated. It's the the best thing you can do for not just yourself but other people in the community it's the biggest sort of community service that you can do at the moment Um, if you are unsure like I said please please go and talk to someone about it Uh, there are people who are willing to you know talk to you through those kind of things and I think just I mean I know all the decisions aren't made by public health people but I just want people to know that honestly the public health workforce in this country is just outstanding and filled with some of the most talented and passionate people I know so there are really good people looking out for us and I just really ask people to to trust them and listen to their advice as we continue to go through the next sort of phases of this hopefully once-in-a-lifetime event. Hopefully. But, yes, yourself included in that array of wonderful people that are really kind of getting us through this at this point. So, Amelie, thanks so much for your time and giving us the facts we need. Um, Now we just need a few more people to listen and get on board. But get vaxxed. Thanks for having me, Tal. All right. Well, thank you, Tyler, for the interview. And of course, um, I don't know what to make of the next few weeks. It's this weird sense of obviously looking forward to some of these key dates and milestones being reached so we can return to some kind of normal and life. But at the same time, yes, still do have plenty of concerns as well. So, Tyler, our team has been making the most of lockdown and they keep talking about this show called Squid Game that both you and I have not ventured in and I actually watched the preview for it and I just thought I do not think I am in the mind space to watch. I'm so keen. I've been, look, we've been having conversations for days now and our team assures me that it's the best thing that I'm ever going to watch. And I did think that it was a reality show, so I'm a little disappointed because, again, they are very certain that it's not a reality show. It is Um, not. I mean, I hope not. I mean, I think it's like a a commentary perhaps on capitalism and (laughs) our current world setup, but it is, yeah, not a reality show. It is violent. Um, But, you know, look, I love our team. I feel like they come to us with some good thoughts every week. So I am going to be spending my weekend on this good game. Yeah, so that is our recommendation, something that neither of us have watched, but something that we can say that at least two members of our team have come to us 
on different news meetings this week and have said that they stayed up till 3am watching. So I think that's a sign of a good show. Um, Yeah, go and maybe check it out. I also heard the CEO of Netflix say yesterday that he expects it to be the biggest show in Netflix's history. So squid game (laughs) all right well thank you for listening to the women's agenda podcast thank you to emily for that interview thank you to superhero for supporting the podcast and you can find all the stories that we discussed in some shape or form on our website where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter so you can get these conversations direct in your inbox thank you for listening